0: So one of the things we know is that chatter undermines us at work in two ways. First, it consumes our attention. Have you ever tried reading a book while you're worried about something, only to read a few pages and not remember anything that you've read? That's chatter. We only have so much attention that we can focus on things at any given moment in time. If all the attention is on your chatter, your ruminations, and your worry,
1: nothing left over to do your job. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. This week, I've got a great conversation to share with you with Dr. Ethan Cross. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Michigan and the author of a book called Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. He is going to help fix my brain and in the process, help me become the best 52-year-old bald paunch bellied golfer on my street. And there are a lot of us, so that's saying something. Seriously, it's a great conversation. He's a very smart, thoughtful guy. I know you'll enjoy what he has to say. It might just help you deal with that inner critic. Before we get to that, though, I want to tell you that this week's episode is brought to you by Masterworks.io, the alternative investing world's only billion-dollar platform where you can buy shares of contemporary artwork by contemporary masters, thus Masterworks.io. I appreciate you supporting the sponsors of Crazy Money. So by all means, give them a click at the link in the show notes or just go right to masterworks.io/crazy money and learn about it for yourself. I also want to say welcome and good morrow or good evening, wherever it may be, whatever time it may be for you, to the new members of the Crazy Money Listeners Group on Facebook. From top to bottom, they would be Marlena Williams. Hello, Marlena, Greg Moore, Michael Riley, Amy Markham de Cesare, de Cesare i hope i got close it's of the caesar whatever that is the last name and chad ferrer from tupelo mississippi and we all know that would be the birthplace of elvis presley thanks for joining chad tell gratz i said hey what's up and gratz if you're listening what's up dude oh also importantly i want to say welcome to canute peter burkfest he is listening in newcastle new south wales the crazy money aussie army rolls on thanks for listening canute please share with all your friends i mean you know your mates and stuff also, one last item of business here. If you live in Boston or near Boston, or if you have friends in Boston, tell them to go see me in the Boston Comedy Festival next week. That would be November 9th at the Rockwell Theater in Somerville, Mass. That's a seven o'clock show. You can get your tickets at bostoncomedyfest.com, kid. All right, let's talk about the voice in your head because the voice in your head isn't all bad. Yeah. It often tells you you're not good enough or that Bob from accounting is plotting to get you fired. But your inner dialogue can be your friend if you take the time to get to know it. It can be. And that's something worth knowing because wouldn't our lives be better if we didn't succumb to the negative thinking in our head? Well, Dr. Ethan Cross is here to share how we can do that and which of those messages that The Voice sends us that we should really pay attention to. As I mentioned before, he is the author of a book called Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. And also a professor of psychology at the University of Michigan, where he is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. He studies this internal chatter and the methods we can implement to get the good stuff out of it and leave the negative stuff behind. And this discussion, he and I discuss why it's so hard to live in the present and whether or not that's actually a problem. We talk about how to distinguish between rumination and obsession. I think some of us out there obsess I know I do sometimes, and it's a violent trap you got to get yourself out of. And lastly, how social media turns up the volume on some of the more negative aspects of our chatter. And he offers pointers on how I can use my inner voice to improve my golf game. Ethan founded the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory at the University of Michigan, where he teaches psychology and management also at the Ross School of Business to those clever MBAs. His work has been featured in Science, the New England Journal of Medicine, and has appeared on CBS Evening News, Good Morning America, and NPR's Morning Edition. He's a native of Brooklyn, New York, earned his BA at the University of Pennsylvania, and a PhD from Columbia. Even though his name is spelled the same, K-R-O-S-S, he is not affiliated with 90s hip-hop duo Chris Cross. You'll hear that joke again. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dr. Ethan Cross. Dr. Ethan Cross, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks for having me, Paul. Excited to be here. So- Ethan, you're the author of a book called Chatter, the voice in our head, why it matters and how to harness it. So let me take you into my head real quick. Okay. This is a pretty important situation in my life here. Okay. So I'm on the 10th green standing over a three foot putt. My three buddies are looking at me and there's big money on the line, like four or $5. (laughs) And all I can hear in my head is you don't deserve to make this putt. How did that voice get in my head and how do I get rid of it? It definitely goes back to your mom. Would you like to tell me about it? <laughs> I'm not sure you're wrong about that, Ethan. <laughs> uh, I think the issue of deserving things might have something to do with my depression era Catholic parents, but they were pretty good in in all other respects. But tell me about how my mom put this voice in my head.
0: No, no, no. I'm just joking with you about mom. I'm sure she's lovely and had nothing to do with your chatter. Well, so let's uh, set the stage. I find that it's often useful to just talk a little bit about like what it even means to have this voice in our head, because we throw around that term in lots of different ways. And, you know, it's not like we learn about the inner voice in school, although we're trying to change that right now. So like inner voice, what is your inner voice? That refers to our ability to silently use language to reflect on your lives. And This capacity is an amazing skill. It's an amazing tool. It lets you do lots of different things. I like to think about it as a kind of Swiss army knife of the human mind. At the most basic end of the spectrum, you go to a grocery store and you think to yourself, hey, what do I have to buy? And you go down the list, eggs, cheese, uh, fill in your favorite foods if I'm not hitting on them. That's using your inner voice, right? It's part of our working memory system, keeps information active. So that's one way we use it. We use our inner voice to simulate and plan like before a date, what are you going to say to the person at the coffee shop? And you go through what you're going to say and what they're going to ask you back. And you do that little dance. You could probably have some fun with, with those inner monologues.
1: I'm happy to not be in that life stage anymore.
0: (laughs) Me too. So simulating and planning before I give a talk, I go around my neighborhood and in my head, I rehearse what I'm going to say, right? No one knows what I'm doing, but I'm in my head activating that voice. To simulate and plan. Think about how essential that capacity is to our success. Your inner voice helps you do that. Then, getting closer to home with golf, our inner voice helps us control ourselves, right? So, when I'm exercising, so this morning I was exercising virtually with the group and the instructor was telling me to do stuff. So, I'm in my head, all right, come on, three more sets. One, two three. And you know, then I'm cursing myself. I'm cursing the trainer as well, but we use this inner voice to control ourselves. And so on the golf course, like one way of harnessing your inner voice to make you work better, not to what is the expression in golf when you screw up the shot? Mulligan, not a
1: mulligan. Well, a mulligan is something you take if you're a cheater after you've hit a bad shot. After you screwed it up.
0: So, you know, come on, Ethan,
1: hit the ball, right? Instead of you're a
0: shit. We'll get into the why you might have the negative inner voice in a second. That's the one most people care the most about. But the last really essential feature of the inner voice, and I love this one, it's kind of magical in some ways in what it does for us. Our inner voice lets us tell stories about our lives. You experience adversity, you're rejected, you lose the bet with your buddies on the golf course. Why did this happen? What does it mean about me? When we experience adversity, we often introspect, we turn our attention and we try to make sense of why we're experiencing what we're experiencing. And we can't come up with these stories and these stories that we tell ourselves about our experiences that gives shape to our understanding of who we are. So our inner voice really shapes our identity and that's powerful. So those are all the good things. The bad side of this is sometimes when you're in the midst of distress, you go inward, you try to tap into this voice to control yourself, but you end up hearing the kinds of thoughts that you heard before, which is you suck, you're going to mess this up. And that's really where, where my book and my research come into play is when you find that chatter beginning to brew the dysfunctional side of the universe, what can you do to bring it back on track?
1: You mentioned being in our heads, and that's a phrase you hear a lot of athletes and high performers talk about that you got to get out of your head. What's the difference between rumination and obsession?
0: Well, a rumination can turn into an obsession. So there's nothing wrong, first of all, about being in your head. And I would love to set the record straight on that. I think right now, culturally, we're all about not being in our head. Just be in the moment, right? Like, don't think about your life. And what I like to tell people, like, I like being in the moment at the appropriate time. When I'm hanging out with my kids at the playground, like, and coaching soccer, yeah, I'm in the moment. I don't want to be thinking about other things. But the human mind did not evolve to be in the moment all the time. Animals are in the moment all the time. We evolve this three-pound mass of tissue that sits between our two ears to transport ourselves in time, to think about the past. Like I love savoring the past. My daughter, a couple of weeks ago, she acted in her first place. She had a lead role, a proud dad. I think about that on my walk into work, and it fills me with joy and pride seeing what she accomplished. I'll often think about the last time I gave a talk and what worked and what didn't work, right? I'm transporting myself in the past to learn from my experiences to do better in in the future. I often think about the future. I fantasize about my next vacation. I think about the next project I have and what's going to come of that and how can I make that happen? So this mind that we possess did not evolve to always be focused on the here and now. The ability to travel in time is an amazing tool. But this mental time travel machine we have, it sometimes breaks down, right? When you're ruminating about the past, you are stuck in the past. You can't get out. When you're worried about the future, the mental time travel machine has broken down there. So, what I like to tell people is let's figure out how to make you a better mental time traveler rather than saying, hey, let's just shut down this
1: capacity of the mind altogether and have you only be in the moment. So what does that mean? Like sometimes when I try to remind myself to be, you know, in the present, I'm like, here I am in the present, I'm eating a cheeseburger, I'm enjoying this cheeseburger, and it feels somewhat artificial. Is it okay to eat that cheeseburger and just kind of think about other great cheeseburgers you've had in the past? Totally. We spend between one half and one third of our waking
0: hours. So when we're awake, not focus on the present, lost in thought. (laughs) And that's not necessarily a bad thing. This ability to float away, to daydream. This is how we've built spaceships. This is how we've developed vaccines, right? This is how people have you know learned from experiences in the past in ways that have made them incredibly successful in their lives. So I actually try to build time into my day to allow me to just float away. I walk to work. I can very easily drive to work. We've got a second car that lets me do that. I don't do it. I walk to work, I try not to take meetings on the phone, and I just let my mind go. I am not in the present on those walks. Maybe I should be, because I'd probably be better at crossing the streets without getting horns honked to me. Without fail, that is where I have ideas for new projects. That's where I solve the thorny problems I'm working on. So that capacity to daydream, to mind wander, this can be harnessed.
1: Hey, everybody. What if I told you there's a secret asset class out there that billionaires are pouring money into? One that nobody is talking about, not on social media, the mainstream news, or even on financial networks. It's one millionaires use to not only grow their wealth, but also to protect it. What if I told you this asset class is contemporary art? Would you believe me if I told you it's outpaced the S&P 500 by 174% over the last 25 years? That is from 1995 to 2020. Seems impossible. In fact, the global art market is set to grow by a staggering $1 trillion by 2026. You have to have like that Dr. Evil $1 trillion. That's why more and more billionaires are investing in contemporary art, and you can too. Masterworks lets you invest in paintings worth tens of millions of dollars, but you don't have to stroke an eight-figure check. You get to play in the art market for a fraction of a fraction of that. Masterworks is the only $1 billion alternative investment platform. They've securitized over 80 paintings with the SEC and have over $250 million under management. Hundreds got a 32% annualized return from their Banksy sale. So demand for Masterworks offerings is higher than ever, but you can skip the wait list by going to masterworks.io slash crazy money. That's masterworks.io slash crazy money be sure to see important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer but do please support the sponsors of crazy money masterworks.io slash crazy money okay so living only in the past or only worrying about the future can be a rabbit hole where we get lost and become unproductive and horrible to be around i think it is one of the big problems we face
0: As a culture or as a species, I should say, is getting stuck in the past or stuck in the future, getting filled with chatter. So, what is chatter? Chatter, you turn your attention inward, you try to make sense of a problem. If it's something that happened in the past, that's rumination. If it's something in the future, that's worry. But you can't get out of that negative thought loop. You just get stuck there. In terms of productivity and performance, if we're talking about work, this is a trillion dollar problem in the United States alone. And that's not my number that comes from the world health organization. So one of the things we know is that chatter undermines us at work in two ways. First, it consumes our attention. Have you ever tried reading a book while you're worried about something only to read a few pages and not remember anything that you've read? Has this ever happened to you? Of course. Yes. Right. That's chatter. I've asked that question to literally tens of thousands of people And every hand in the audience goes up. We only have so much attention that we can focus on things at any given moment in time. If all the attention is on your chatter, your ruminations and your worry, nothing left over to do your job. So that's one way that chatter can sink us at work. The other thing it can do is it can dismantle our habits. So a lot of the things that we do at work, whether you're a professional athlete, a surgeon, a presenter is... We're doing things that over time we have developed the ability to do without thinking. So when I get up on a stage and I start giving a talk to an audience, I'm doing lots of different things. I'm pacing the room. I'm making sure to smile. I'm nodding. I'm moving my hands. I'm doing all of that without thinking. If I start experiencing chatter over what I'm doing, what ends up happening is I start zooming in on what I'm doing and thinking about, am I doing it right? So I'll start thinking, Am I moving enough? Am I using my hands too much or too little? Am I smiling? And the moment you start fixing, you see, it's happening right now. The moment you start fixating on those individual elements of a performance, the whole thing unravels. This is what happened in in the Olympics this summer with Simone Biles, right? She called it the twisties. Twisties are the chatter, right? It's super dangerous for her because she's doing these super complicated things normally that she does without thinking. They're automatic. Chatter basically makes them not be automatic anymore. And in the process of doing so dismantles them. So that can be pretty problematic for doing a good job, you know, on the ball field or in the boardroom.
1: Along those lines, I've had this experience on stage where I've been doing fine, telling jokes and all this. And in my head, I'll be like, I got to pick up cheese on the way home. Kind of you talk about the grocery list before. Yeah. Does that happen to you when you're talking to your students or you're giving a lecture someplace? I try not to have it happen. Um, It's it's not good when it happens,
0: but yeah, I mean, it's happened before and it can be incredibly disruptive when that does, right? You're starting to think about something else and then you can't pay attention to the moment. So if you're doing a gig and you're trying to perform, that can be really difficult. (laughs) I've had that happen in a few dinner meetings where I get an email right before that's just activates the thought process, right? Like, Maybe a paper got rejected or something and someone else is talking and it is really hard for me to pay attention to what they're saying because my mind is somewhere else. There's actually a great finding uh, that I talk about in my book where people look at what the best predictor of their moment to moment happiness was. The best predictor was not what a person was actually doing, but it was what they were thinking about. So what I mean by that is you could be on a roller coaster at Disney World, assuming you like that kind of thing. I personally I don't, don't. I don't. No, <laughs> I me neither. We're kindred spirits here. Or right, whatever we both enjoy. Maybe it's a fine meal. But whatever it is, if your mind is somewhere else and focused on chatter, that's the best predictor of how you're going to feel in that moment, not what you're actually doing.
1: Okay. I was in a bar on Saturday night after a couple of shows, a friend of mine's band was playing and the Braves playoff game was on the TV. And in the moment when the Braves clinched their World Series berth, the bar explodes. Nobody's thinking in that moment about anything else except this great thing that just happened for Braves fans. When you go to a comedy club and you're crying because you're laughing so hard, you're not thinking about anything else. Is that an example of the conclusion that you just cited?
0: Yeah, exactly. And basically, here's where the big challenge is. The big challenge. So, so I think a lot of people have taken that experience, which is being in the moment, turning the mind off. This can feel great at times, right? So let's try to do that more. That makes sense on the surface as a recommendation for getting people to be happier. But what I think we lose sight of if our sole focus is being focused on the moment is that we can derive great benefit and even pleasure from thinking about the past and future. Do you ever think about fun stuff that doesn't involve what you're doing right now? Of course. Fantasies, right? Mm. Like nostalgia, savoring. These are experiences that really make life worth living. And I think we're overcorrecting if we're saying, Hey, if we're having some trouble, because we tend to ruminate or worry to say, hey, let's just shut that down altogether and just be in the moment. I think we could do a lot better than that. I think there are a lot of tools that exist for helping make people
1: more skilled at traveling in time effectively. And you'll give us some tactics before we're done here, but let me ask you about a few of my inner thoughts. So as I'm reading your book, I'm trying to pay attention to the dialogue in my head. And the number one thing that my head tells me is go check Instagram. That's the number one thought that I have. And where's that coming from? Well, it's besides a horrible need for attention that led me to quit my job <laughs> and start this podcast. Social media, and we've
0: done some work on this over the years, is, is an interesting new environment that we spend a lot of time interacting in. And it can be, it can have these addictive features because one of the things that your Instagram feed does is it, is it keeps you connected to your social network and it gives you feedback. I assume you're posting a lot. A good bit. Yeah. You probably don't care about how many likes you get in a post, right? Of
1: course not. Why else would I post?
0: Right. So every time you get that little like, right, that is activating reward circuitry (laughs) in your brain. It's a positive, what we call positive reinforcer. And those are really, really powerful (laughs) for keeping us dialed into a network. Now, I would like to think that reading the narrative in chatter is equally rewarding in that sense. But you know, if it's between the, the pages in chatter or getting some likes on your pictures or looking at these amazing photos on Instagram, like that's a pretty tough comparison.
1: All right. The second thought I have is that I'm not getting as much done as I'd like to be getting done. You know, frustration with lack of productivity, which might have something to do with number one above, but that's one of the things that keeps coming up for me. Like, why am I not getting more done and trying a little bit of beating myself up for that?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, being productive is a goal that you have. And so if that's an important goal, basically what happens is we have a system in the brain that is monitoring our success towards completing that goal. And that system is running all the time that you're awake, basically. And so it's checking in every now and then. And if reading a book is not central to the goal, right, that's going to give you a little alarm clock. And actually, it's going to activate your inner voice. And your inner voice is going to be the messenger that says, hey, hey, dum-dum not getting what you need to get done, done. So stop reading, go to work.
1: Just to clarify, I didn't mean that these were thoughts that were happening while I was reading a book. I just mean like during the period of weeks that I was reading the book, I was trying to observe what was happening in my head.
0: It makes it more amusing if it was actually when you were reading the (laughs) book and I take no no. offense. So that's why
1: I... In full disclosure, I listened to the book and you did a great job narrating it, by the way. Oh, nice, nice. I've talked to so many authors, some of whom didn't do a great job narrating the voice or narrating their books, or that they would hire somebody to do it. And I always find it interesting to see who they pick or who the publisher picks.
0: Or if they even have a pick that it's not even clear that they do necessarily. Yeah. Recording a book, it was a lot of fun and exhausting. So I'm glad you listened. What you're describing. So this kind of, am I hitting my to-do list? Mm -hmm. That's one of the functions that are in our voice serves for us. We are constantly monitoring what we have to do. And if we're not achieving our goals... We get a little alert that tells us like a notification on your computer, except it's in our mind and our inner voice is often delivering it saying, hey, get back to work.
1: What's the difference between sort of like near term or current chatter and then sort of longitudinal or long term narratives that we have in our heads about, for example, relationship with other people like my boss is a jerk or my wife doesn't care enough about these parts of our lives. That's not happening in any given moment, but it always kind of comes back. To find us at some point.
0: Why do we have.
1: Well, what's the difference between like sort of what's going on in my head right now and then sort of the thoughts that I have that have been baked in? And just when you're fighting with your spouse or a friend, it's not about the thing that it's about. It's about the ongoing narrative that is the subtext of your relationship, right? Right.
0: I think one important thing to come back to is this idea that your inner voice doesn't do one thing, it does a lot of things for you. And so you can find yourself quote unquote talking to yourself for lots of different reasons. A couple of years ago, there was a a whole brouhaha on the internet where someone said they don't ever talk to themselves. And then people were debating, there are all these articles. I get calls like, do some people not have an inner voice? And the answer to that question is no. If you've got a well-functioning mind, if you have no language deficits, then you have an inner voice, right? If you could talk to other people, and you can repeat a phrase silently in your head, you've got an inner voice, but we rely on it to different degrees to do different things for us. So, you know, it can activate when you're in the grocery store or for you, when you're doing a stand-up gig and thinking about what you should be getting at the grocery store, it could be activating when you're thinking about what you have to do in your life, or when you're trying to like, make sense. Why am I arguing with my, with my wife all the time? And, and how does that link back to the fight we had three years ago at
1: The diner and blah, blah, blah. You were there? No, well, you know, you did look familiar. So for the record, I was just using us as an example. This is not about an ongoing fight or anything. I was just saying that I think all couples have narratives they've built into their heads about each other. As we all do with all our friends, my brother, my sister, my best friend. I've got thoughts that are there about them and sometimes they surface based on different stimuli.
0: That brings up another, I think, very important point to maybe chat a little bit about, which is if you ask me, do you have control over your thoughts, right? turns out we got to dig into that a little bit more. We do not have control over the thoughts that pop into our heads at any given moment in time. So why do you sometimes walk down the street and then just think about the argument you had three years ago? I could cobble together some educated guesses about based on what I know about the human mind, But I can't tell you with authority why that is the case, right? So we don't have control over the thoughts that pop into our head. What we do have a lot of control over is how we engage with those thoughts. And so that distinction, I think, is really important because it means if I have this Looney Tunes thought that pops into my head, I'm not going to start beating myself up about it, right? Because I don't know why that happens. Hopefully we'll get there at some point. We're not there yet, but I can manage how I engage with that thought. I actually tell a story to open up chatter about what I would call a Looney Tune thought to use a very technical and hopefully I'm not offending anyone. I'm trying to make light here.
1: It is called crazy money, though it's not meant to describe anybody's state of mind, but I'll take the heat, Ethan. Okay, cool. I got a, a threat in the mail, a serious threat to me,
0: my family. I was really shook up for days, not sleeping, pacing the house with a baseball bat. And at one point, I think to myself, even saying this out loud, I feel embarrassed to say so. I did write about in a book for hundreds of thousands of people to read, but that's another story. I thought to myself, maybe I should hire a bodyguard who specializes in protecting academics. Like, this is insane. Get
1: some ex-Massad guy to come live in your driveway.
0: That's right. You know, Massad or Delta Force, either one, but you know, they're gonna, for a discount rate, come protect me in the Midwest, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I was not a picture of sanity in that moment. I don't know why I had that thought. Maybe I was watching Fauda on Netflix right before. Who knows? But how do I engage with that thought? That's the key. And for me, that was actually like
1: a useful moment to snap me out of that funk. For what it's worth, I didn't find your reaction to that situation completely unreasonable, especially you have a baby at home at the time, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think everything was was relatively reasonable except for the uh, fantasizing about Arnold Schwarzenegger becoming my private bodyguard.
1: Yeah. Is there credibility to the whole, like, Jungian dual mind thing where this happened to me? Speaking of crazy thoughts, I'll make a confession. I was watching the movie... What's the movie about the guy, the documentary about the guy who climbed El Capitan without any ropes? Have you seen this? He rock climbs like a 3,000 sheer rock face. Just hearing
0: about that, you know, it induces a negative mood within me. I okay. Mean, that's
1: crazy. I'm crazy afraid of heights. And watching this yeah. guy, he's climbing ropeless up the side of this mountain, like, I think it's 3,000 feet. And when he's executing, like, the most difficult part of it, something inside my head said, I hope he falls. And I oh, was like, mm. oh my God, that's a terrible, terrible thought. And it's not yeah. like I have anything against this guy. I don't watch snuff films. I'm not into violence at all. <laughs> I hate confrontation, let alone violence. But like, is what's going on in my brain where, where I would come up with that? And Paul, I think, you know, you want
0: to come and enroll in our PhD program here in psychology and neuroscience. You and I will work on that. We will try to figure out why that thought popped into your head and why dark thoughts like that pop into many people's heads at times. But we don't know just yet. Here is the key. The key is to know that if you have that kind of thought every now and again, welcome to the human condition, right? We all have experienced those kinds of dark thoughts pop up and it really doesn't matter. It's the meaning we attach to it. And so, and importantly, the actions we take. So I'd be much more concerned if you told me that you then, you know, took action to bring that thought into reality, which I know you didn't. No, of course. Um, But that is, you know, some people really feel responsible for the thoughts that they experience. And if I held myself responsible for every negative thought I experience in life, like that's a big burden to bear. And so given that we know that at least at this moment in time, we don't know why different thoughts pop up into our head. We know that people don't have control over that. They don't have conscious control over that. Then I think, you Nina, know, don't even really bother yourself with trying to do something that is out of your control. Instead, focus on where you do have control, which is once the thought is there, how do you engage with it? What kind of attention do you pay with that thought? Do you try to reframe how you're thinking to feel better and be more productive? That's like, welcome to my playground. We've got a lot of different ways to help people with that, how to channel their thoughts once they're triggered.
1: Can I help my kids learn how to think?
0: I certainly hope so. I think there's a lot of evidence that suggests we can teach. Uh, So... I spend most of the time in my book and and actually most of the time I spend in my lab here at Michigan is focused on identifying tools that people can use to think better. That's one way of talking about this, to align their thoughts, feelings, or behaviors with their goals. If you want to think or feel or behave a certain way to get to some point, we try to identify what are the tools that help get you there. And we've identified lots and lots of tools and a lot of those tools are relevant to kids. And so, A lot of tools that are relevant to adults are also relevant to kids too. So I've got two daughters, 11 and seven, and I'm constantly, though I like to think not in an annoying or obnoxious way, talking to them about these tools. You know, they often tell me to get lost and roll their eyes at me and say, you're boring, but I have noticed that these lessons are penetrating. They're getting in there. One of my daughters took diving lessons during the dive team this summer And so it turns out that you want to give yourself an opportunity to experience chatter, start diving. You just wait there for a long time until you can get up on that diving board. And then once you're on the diving board, everyone's looking at you and then you've got to execute. At one point I asked her, so, Hey, what are you, what are you thinking out there? You're so quiet there for like 20 minutes before you have to go. She's like, well, first thing I do is I talk to myself using my name. That's one of our tools. Like, I'm like, Maya, you got this. And then she's got a little ritual she developed, which I also talk about, like a little thing she does with her hair and her little kind of hands to just get her mindset. And then she executes. So I like to think that these lessons are getting in there in a way that helps them.
1: Your father taught you at a very young age to go inside to find solutions to your problems. Do you think that had any link to what you ended up doing for a living? In a
0: roundabout way, it did. If you asked me as a kid whether I would become a psychologist, I would be like, "No way." My dad used to talk to me all the time about introspection, like turning your attention inward and trying to use your inner voice to your benefit. And Was your dad a
1: hippie? even?
0: He was a complicated guy. He was one part Joe Pesci from Brooklyn, <laughs> and another part hippie. I joke the way he used to drive around Brooklyn was one hand at like nine o'clock and the other hand on the (laughs) horn of a car, you know. And the only time he'd take his hand off the horn would be to do this. Just like the yogi he sounds like. Exactly. So he was doing that, smoking, you know, all the time. But then when he wasn't doing that stuff, he was reading Uh, the Bhagavad Gita and, and other Eastern philosophical books and talking to me about them. So he spoke a ton to me about this stuff. And when I got to college, I thought I'd be a real doctor, basically. If you did well, where I grew up in school, you basically had two career paths. It was a physician or a lawyer. I discovered very quickly into my first semester that becoming a physician was not for me. And then I just kind of explored and I fell in love with psychology And so, and I think a large part of that was the conversations I had with him growing up about the mind, which, you know, I think it's one of the few things that we still know so little about. So it really is like as cheesy as it sounds, it's undiscovered country and trying to figure out how it works makes for a pretty good day job.
1: I was about to tell you that the biggest gift that I got in high school was the C my biology teacher gave me. And I got to... Scratch that off my list of potential career choices.
0: I got one of those my first year in college. So, same gift. It was a C <laughs> in bio.
1: Yeah. And as I'm telling you that story, I am reminded of an anecdote or a data point that you shared in the book. And that's that people would rather share information about themselves than receive money. That's crazy. And how much money? Yeah. So, what were the stakes there? I don't remember how much money they were
0: willing to give up in that study but it does speak to this social glue that bonds us together. And this idea that we often like to talk about ourselves and get feedback from others when we share information. One of the most revealing bits of science that I came across when I was researching the book was how other people fit into this chatter experience. Because if you think about chatter, when you're lost in those negative thought loops, this is a very private experience. And yet we know that the majority of people when they're experiencing chatter, they are intensely motivated to find someone to share that chatter with. Now, there are a couple of exceptions. Like we don't like to talk about experiences of shame and embarrassment or certain forms of trauma, but everything else, our chatter serves like jet fuel that motivates us to want to connect with others. And that I find just to be remarkable. That can lead to both good or bad things, right? So some conversations we have with others could be really helpful. Other conversations, not so good. You throw social media into the matrix and it gets really complicated. If you've ever checked your Twitter feed, you no doubt can see people's chatter just streaming through the feed. I find it remarkable at how people just unload these little like thought bubbles or whatever you want to call them. It's like, okay, more negativity. You know, it's just like, okay, we're going to hear more about this. So, I don't know if you've discovered this as you voyeuristically scroll through Twitter, but it seems pretty common in my feed. So that's what my algorithm is giving me.
1: Is other people just dumping their thoughts onto a digital place to purge? Yeah, mostly complaints. It has a
0: negative tinge to it. And so lots of complaining I see filter down the Twitter stream. Is complaining good for us? Well, that depends. I think this is a good segue, actually, to back to chatter and other people. I think complaining can be useful. So let's break down. Why do we actually talk about the stuff that's on our mind and the chatter with other people? We've got two goals that we're trying to fulfill. One thing that we want to have happen is we have these social and emotional goals. We want to find someone who will take the time to listen, to connect with us, and to validate our experience, to help us normalize it. Like there is real value that comes from knowing that there's someone else in this world that cares enough about me, that they're willing to take the time to listen that enhances the friendship bonds between two people. So that's one thing we're looking for in a conversation. The other thing we're hoping to get though, is we're trying to satisfy these cognitive needs that we have, which is, Hey, something is on your mind. You're pissed off about something, and or you're anxious about something. You want someone to help you work through that experience, right? Because fundamentally, it doesn't feel good to be pissed off or anxious or depressed. And so what we're often trying to, to do in that conversation is talk to someone who can help broaden our perspective, give us the insight that we are struggling to find on our own. And other people are often in a prime position to do that for us because. The problem's not happening to them. And when the problem isn't happening to them, it's much, much easier to offer sage advice. And so the best kinds of conversations that when it comes to the things that are bugging us are conversations that can satisfy both of those goals. So being concrete, Paul, you've come to me with a problem, like a really annoying you know, guest from Ann Arbor, let's say on your show. You want to kind of get it off, like I'll take the time to listen, hear about what what happened. And then at a certain point in the conversation, I'll start to broaden your perspective. Hey, Paul, you know, like how many of these have you done? And it's one bad interview, big, you know, big deal. Let's move on to the next one. Or actually something like that happened to me the other day and it really sucked. But you know what I know? Like three days later, I feel fine. Those are ways of helping to broaden your perspective that can ultimately help you feel better. And so is complaining useful? If it gets you to that end point, it can be.
1: Right. Does music reading or exercise help? quiet my inner voice? Oh, I love this
0: question. Um, This is actually believe it or not. It's something that we're looking at now in the lab. Music in particular is really interesting to me because it is an age old emotion regulation tool. Let me give you a concrete example of this. A couple of weeks ago, my whole family, my wife and two kids were going to my youngest daughter's soccer game. And I noticed that the mood in the car is just, it's it's not what you want before, (laughs) before a soccer game. Right. And so, so what do I do? I go into my playlist and what do I come up with? Journey, don't stop believing. And I progressively raise the volume. Next thing, you know, everyone in the car is singing. We pull up to the soccer field. I open the door. It's like, you know, a horse right out of the, you know, whatever the, the beginning of a race, my daughter like darts onto the field, scores five goals, and and so that's a personal example of how music can be, I think, a very powerful tool for harnessing our
1: emotions. Why? How does it do that? So your daughter doesn't hear Don't Stop Believing and thinks about the eighth grade dance in nineteen, you know, eighty one, right? No, it is the
0: sensor I so here, this is a hypothesis because we're doing this work and I'm really interested in it. I'm thinking about this as a sensory shifter. So we've got lots of senses, right? Like think about taste. The other day I sat down at a meal and I just took a sip of this incredible Italian soup with a little tortellini in it. And the moment I tasted this, I was like, filled with joy, right? Part of the way our senses work is by channeling our emotional experiences, right? So taste as an example if something tastes good, that elicits a positive response it says, hey, have more of that. If it's bad, you get a negative emotional response. Stay away from that. It could be poisonous. Mm-hmm. Music, I'd argue, operates similarly in the sense that pleasant sounding music activates these positive emotions, whereas really aversive sounding music can activate negative emotions. Smells work the same way. I probably don't have to go too deep to ask you to think about the last time you smelled something that Wasn't very good, right? You move away, immediate visceral reaction. Mm -hmm. Perfume, though, right? Like we love perfume or cologne. And so the bigger point here is, and, and this is just me thinking, we are doing these studies, is this. I think a lot of the way we regulate ourselves in life is we just kind of stumble on things that sometimes help, sometimes don't. We're not really that deliberate and proactive about how we use certain tools to help us think or feel the way we want to think or feel. And I think we, I don't think this, I know this, there are tools all around us, right? And I think music and taste and smell are one category of tools. You can imagine like the pump up playlist. Lots of people have these, the pump up playlist, the feel sad playlist, right? Like you can have different ones. Hey, you know, I I need to like raise my emotions. I'm not going to wait for the song to come up on the radio I'm not going to wait to watch the right movie. I'm going to have the playlist right there, ready to go. That's my first line of defense. I'm going to queue up Journey, followed by a little bit of Van Halen, and then plug in other really embarrassing music to follow. you got to give me some of yours now.
1: You know, you- I've got a playlist called Cheer Up, Grumpy. It has The Canals, which is a sort of a southern band that reminds me of college and when I was younger and had more hair. The Smiths, in excess. Prince, Raspberry Beret. Ooh. Okay. Peter Frampton. Do you feel like we do? And let me ask you, Paula, does it cheer up grumpy when you listen
0: to that music? Yeah, for sure. I haven't done this science yet, but my guess is on a 10 point scale, it's going to shift you from like a three to an eight in a matter of minutes. And that's a large effect. Now, those effects are fleeting. Right. So you'd want to supplement that with different kinds of additional tools that exist, different ways of reframing things, talking to other people, walking in nature and so forth. But I think that's one powerful line of defense.
1: I think I also need to listen to some new music. I'm embarrassed to read that there's nothing on there recorded since 1995. You got to be careful, though, Paul, because I try to keep contemporary. Apple actually sends
0: me some suggestions every Friday. It's my new music playlist. My God, is this stuff embarrassing? You know, my my daughters make fun of me for the songs that
1: they send me that they're going to think I like. It's not me. It's (laughs) the algorithm. It's right. It's right. All right. Let's talk about some tactics here, right? You have several tactics to help mitigate negative chatter. Yes. So the first one, and you mentioned it before, using the third person, which Richard Nixon did, by the way, all the time. You're not going to have Nixon to kick around anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So, how do you do that without sounding like a crazy person?
0: There are two ways you do it. The first way is do it silently in your head, and this is the way we've actually studied this in the lab. Let me actually pause and just explain to listeners how this works to make it clear why this isn't Looney Tunes. To remind them who Richard Nixon was, also Richard Nixon. He was an illustrious uh, former president. So, like I said before, we're much. Maybe I didn't say this. Well, you'll tell me. Here's one of the things we know about human beings. We're much better at advising other people than we are taking our own advice. Like there's a famous phrase, do as I say, not as I do. And I think this will resonate with many of us. What we have learned is that language provides us with a tool for automatically switching our perspective, for getting us to think about ourselves like we were another person. And using your name and the second person pronoun you is a way of using language to do this. If you think about when do we use names? Most of the time we use names, we use them when we think about and refer to other people. So in your head, the link, the association between thinking about others and and names, really, really strong. And so what happens is when you use your own name to coach yourself through a problem, that's essentially turning on the, the mental machinery for thinking about others which makes us much easier to be objective and generate wise solutions to our problems. Now, as you said, you don't want to do this out loud, walking down the streets of a major city. If you feel compelled to do it out loud, some people do report finding it useful to talk out loud. Like, you know, come on, Ethan, what the hell are you doing here? There's a simple solution, which is to take two of these, which are little AirPods or earbuds, put them in your ears, then you can talk to yourself all you want because it looks like you're on the phone with someone else. Not a problem, but do try this tool. This is a very easy tool to implement. We've done these neuroscience studies where we find that the benefits that you get from using this technique, you could see this in milliseconds. It's a really powerful quick switch. And so this is the first thing I do when I smell the chatter brewing. All right, Ethan, here's what you're going to do. I start talking to myself, giving myself advice. Like I would give my friend advice, my best friend. One of the most interesting things that we've seen in our experiments in the lab is this. When we get people to experience chatter, just the normal way, like what's streaming through your head right now when you're worried about something, we'll ask people informally, we'll ask them, hey, would you mind telling us what you're thinking about? People are often embarrassed to share what's going through (laughs) their head, right? They actually don't want to even articulate it out loud. Like you said before, you were watching that film And you thought to yourself, I wish he would just
1: die. No, 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 no. I didn't say that. I said, I hope he falls, which would lead to his death, obviously. But I I didn't quite wish him dead. I just (laughs) didn't want him to succeed for a microsecond. I see. Fair enough. You might be,
0: if we weren't in a comfortable conversation here, maybe you wouldn't feel comfortable sharing that. People think to themselves things when we ask them, hey, would you ever say to your partner, your friend, your colleague? The things you're saying to yourself right now, no way, you know, the way in which we can be hard on ourselves. And so try to give yourself advice like you would your best buddy and use your name to help you do it. That's one very easy thing you can do. Another low hanging fruit tool based in science, something that I like to call mental time travel. We talked about it before, but it's a specific kind. So if you're grappling with something right now, think about how you're going to feel about this thing a week from now, a month from now, a year from now. What doing that does to us psychologically is it makes it clear that most of the, this is not true of all stressors, but most of the stressors that we have, let's say right before you've got to do a stand up gig or I've got to give a presentation, you know, it might be challenging, but how am I going to feel about this the day after it's done? I'll be on to something else or a month later, I'll totally forget about it.
1: Meaning that like in the big picture, we're all dead anyway in the long run, and it doesn't matter. You know, you want to go dark, you could take it all the way over there. Well, is it distance? It's broadening. So here's what happens
0: with chatter. We get zoomed in, tunnel vision on the problem at hand. That is all we could think about. Just this one thing that we're struggling with. And so if you broaden your perspective, once you start broadening, there are all sorts of alternative ways of making sense of this experience, that can often be really, really useful for putting it in context. And yeah, death can be the ultimate broadener. I have a colleague who used to get really anxious before giving presentations. And what she would say to herself is like, well, I could be dead instead. <laughs> and that every single time that just, that was it. It just broke her out of the funk because, Hey, what's worse? You know, people like, you know, falling asleep while I talk or I'm dead for her. It was being dead. Not all people will necessarily have that reaction, but it worked for her.
1: You mentioned some other things your daughter was doing when she gets on the, on the diving board. She's got a little routine. What does that do for us? So when we experience chatter, we feel like our
0: thoughts are in control of us. We're not in the driver's seat anymore we don't have control over our mind in a certain sense. And what we've learned is that you can compensate for that experience. You could compensate for feeling like you're not in control by doing things that are under your control. And that's where rituals come in. So rituals are structured sequences of behaviors that you do the exact same way every single time. And they are what I like to call an ancient chatter fighting tool. You look around cultures around the world they prescribe rituals for dealing with chatter provoking situations. Like when someone dies, Jews will dress in black and let their hair grow. Hindus will dress in white and they'll shave their heads and do other things like exact opposite behaviors for the same event, but they're doing this prescribed set of behaviors that is under their control and doing something that is under your control can make us feel like we have more agency, more ownership over our lives in ways that can be really, really helpful when you're dealing with chatter. This is why Rafael Nadal, tennis player, if you've ever watched him play, he has these wacky rituals. He picks a wedgie out of his butt before every single serve, and then he twirls his hair behind his ear, does some other stuff, and then he serves. When he's asked, why does he do this? He says, I'm ordering my my surroundings, right? Like his body in this case, to provide me with the order I seek in my head. So, you know, that's one thing you could do is, is develop a ritual.
1: You mentioned also, and I know we just have a couple minutes left here, so we'll be wrapping up, to create order in your environment. Does this go back to the famous make your bed speech? Is that the crux of it? It does connect to that, but the principle here is very similar to
0: why rituals work. One of the things that I find myself doing when I experience chatter, so before I knew about this work, I would just stumble into the kitchen and start like washing the dishes and scrubbing down the island. And then I like organize my office. I'm the kind of guy who usually there's a trail of clothing from the shower to the closet to my office downstairs drives my wife crazy, like just kind of free. But when I'm experiencing chatter, everything is properly put away. And that helps me feel more in control. Same thing as the bed. The added bonus to organizing your spaces your partner may become more happy with you as sometimes I joke, although I think there might be a grain of truth that my wife doesn't mind it when I'm a little bit on the edge chronically because the house is looking so good. So,
1: (laughs) all right. So back to my golf, I'm standing over a three foot putt. I should back away. I should crack my knuckles. I should touch my right ear, say, Paul, you're going to make this putt. And then I knock it in the hole. That's exactly what you should do. That is exactly my golf ritual. So the pre-shot routine, ladies and gentlemen, is treat yourself as if you're the friend making the putt. Use the third person, do some kind of routine, and then knock it in the hole. That's right. Ethan Cross is my guest today. The book is called Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. Ethan, where can people find out more about you?
0: They go to my website, with com and
1: get all the info they want are you the uncle to the atlanta hip-hop duo Chris Cross by any chance
0: you know that i've never had that question before i am not but uh, i do know the song it's on
1: and it maybe on one of my playlists it'll make you feel good warm it up ethan thanks so much for your time hey thanks so much for having me paul well this is why i love doing crazy money because it's an avenue for me to meet smart interesting people who are helping to understand the world more to understand our brains more thank you dr ethan cross the book chatter is very good And there's a link to it in the show notes to his website, but that's where you can find more about the book and places where you can buy the book. And there's also more tactics in the book than we had time to cover today. And those tactics can help you get your head around your head, as it were, and get the best out of it and know what to sort of leave behind. Let's get to takeaways real quick. First, not living in the present isn't always terrible. The talk these days is you got to be in the present, man. You got to be in the moment. And that's true. I think it's certainly true that you don't want to be on your phone when you're with your kids or you want to be paying attention when your spouse, partner, husband, or wife is trying to have a conversation that means something to him or her. It's important to put down the phone, close the laptop and focus. It's also probably not such a good idea to spend hours every day trolling your ex-boyfriend or girlfriends on Facebook, but it's okay to daydream. It's okay to relish memories and to think about the future. It's pleasant to think about the future It's and to ideate about the future. So too, do don't try to turn it off. Try to focus it. Try to channel it. And remember that we are modeling our thinking for our kids. We're showing our kids by the way we obsess or don't obsess or we respond with positivity how they should react to such stimuli in the future. And positivity is contagious as is negativity. Model the good thinking. Some of the tactics that he talked about, and we didn't get to all the tactics that he covers in the book. He's a very diplomatic guest, such that he didn't try to squeeze all of them in, but there are a lot of really useful ones. Number one, use the third person. Talk to yourself in the third person. Our brain hears it better when we're not talking to ourselves as in the first person. Imagine that you're advising a friend because most of us are far crueler to ourselves than we would be to another person that we love and cared about. Think about you're talking to a friend. You can use you when referring to negative events and to imagine that you're observing your situation as a fly on the wall. Another one was to create order in your environment. That goes back to the whole make your bed thing. I do find that I get a little bit more productive when I clean my desk off, clean the floor of the office off, because I've got stacks of books that I'm going to read someday. I swear it. It's probably not positive. Oh, by the way, the round of golf I played after my interview with Ethan, I only three putted once only three because I was going over the ball. It was very intentional. I would say Paul Ollinger is a great putter and he's going to make this putt. And even if I didn't make it, I got it a lot closer to the hole and I avoid 17 three putts. That's what I did. All right. Thanks for staying all the way to the end. Next week we'll be talking about impact investing and the prospect of using our money to make the world a better place by voting for the change we want to see and aligning our values with our money. My guest will be Dr. Judith Roden. She is kind of a big deal. She is the former president of the University of Pennsylvania, the former CEO of the Rockefeller Foundation, and the author of a book called Making Money Moral. I know you'll want to join for this. If you haven't subscribed, please follow this podcast on whatever app you're listening to it. In the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.